This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number six of the series Accepted and Access, an exposition of Colossians chapter 1, 12 to 22. We are dealing with this passage particularly because of the strength that it gives to the faith of the believer in his position before God. No one can enter into the presence of God without being perfectly and completely restored from the original condition we find ourselves by nature. The scripture which not only reveals that God is a God of love tells us that God is a consuming fire and that he cannot look upon iniquity. And consequently, it's not possible for us by anything we do or anyone else does for us to make us accepted. We are accepted in the Beloved and it's the Beloved that makes us accepted and nothing that we have done to make it possible. Will you look at Colossians chapter 1 and come through so far because the uh, passage is so full uh, that I'm sure most of us would be glad to go step by step at the uh, beginning of this little study to see where we've reached. Colossians chapter 1 starts in verse 12 with giving thanks. You will notice we're not asking for anything. We're giving thanks for something that's done. Giving thanks unto the Father, and then it says that he will make us meet some time or the other. He hath made us meet. And all the way down, he hath delivered us, verse 13. He hath translated us. In verse 14, we have redemption. Make these things your own, friend. They are written for your learning and for mine. Not, oh, do please deliver us, he hath. But you say, I don't always feel like it. Well, that's very possible. But your feelings are on an entirely different ground. What you feel like is one thing. What you are in the sight of God through Christ is another. And that's what we're dealing with here. And then notice this. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, as I mentioned before, the word meet and the word meter means that you measure up to God's standard. Is there anyone who could dare to say that without Christ he could hope to measure up to the standard of God in the glory and that light which he's so searching? But it's here, by meet. To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints, and the word saints means a holy place, in light. Here's a position then that is searching for one of the definitions of light is that reveals. It doesn't cover up. And it was expressed, you remember, in that hymn which touches a depth, eternal light. Eternal light. How clear that soul must be that can stand in that presence. Fancy us this morning claiming that we are ready to stand in the searchlight of God's presence. And yet that's true. Because he's not looking at the way in which we live or conduct ourselves. That is another side of the story. 
We must never confuse the root, which is the work of grace, and the fruit that we produce. The root is one thing, the consequences in our life. We shall never be satisfied with our hope until that day when we shall be with him and like him. So it's in the light. And then if you glance down to the bottom of this section, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable. There are two aspects here which we should have to examine when we reach the passage. The word holy takes us into the temple, and the word unblameable refers to the character of the priests and the sacrifices. They must have no spot, otherwise they were set aside. That is to be our position in glory. And unreprovable, that's in the law court of God. So in both cases, accepted in the beloved is perfect, and it's in his sight. So here we have this morning two statements. This position we have is in the light, and this position we have is in his sight. Oh, what a statement. Almost too good to be true, which is a wonderful definition of the grace of God. So now we're looking at the one of the features of this. We've reached the passage where we speak about peace. Let's read down till we come to it, shall we? Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, or the authority of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And then it turns aside for a moment to look at the majesty of this one who died for us, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. And with that overwhelming statement it goes on to say, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn not only of creation, but the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it was well pleasing to the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. Can we ever exhaust these words? Can we really understand them in their fullness? We can only stand and be amazed that this glorious person should stoop so low as to die the death of the cross, and that's what comes next. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, that's where we stay this morning, we reach the question of this peace that has been made. Now we must distinguish between the basis of peace and the effects and fruits of peace. I think if you turn back to Isaiah 32, we get it put, to, put nicely for us uh, by the prophet. Isaiah 32. It says in verse 17, the work of righteousness shall be peace. The passage we had read in our lesson, the psalm, says 
righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The epistle to the Romans says, therefore being justified, and the word justified is the word righteous. You can't say righteousified in the English language. We have peace. So peace is not merely quietness. Look, the work of righteousness shall be peace. Now having got that, having got a righteous basis on which we stand before God, the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Don't you see, friends, we're apt to mistake the effect for the cause. The cause of our peace is outside of us altogether. It's nothing whatever to do with what we do or think or how we live or anything. It's the work of Christ on our behalf. And then when we've accepted it, the effect of it begins to operate in our hearts and lives. And the uh, and then he goes on to say, And my people shall dwell in peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places. They're the consequences of having peace with God. They don't provide peace. They are the results. And we shall go on in our present life and we should always be conscious that we haven't reached up to the high standard that is put in the scriptures, but neither did the Apostle Paul himself. He was very conscious as he writes about himself in Romans that when he would do good, evil was present with him. But at the end he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. So after saying that he was a poor specimen, he says there's no condemnation, for my salvation doesn't depend upon me, or my works, or my attainment, but upon him. So that is a feature we want to remember for our own comfort, and emphasise to all who are seeking after this wonderful future peace. Well now the next thing is, uh, we must go back again to the thought, it, it's peace through the blood of his cross. It's something which has been purchased. It's something which is based upon sacrifice. I don't know whether you know the opening chapters of the book of Leviticus, but the opening chapters of the book of Leviticus speak to the people who have been redeemed from Egypt and give them a series of pictures in the various offerings by which they draw near to God. And the first one is the whole burnt offering, complete, absolute surrender. The last one is the trespass offering, things that you have done. The second one is the meal offering, which speaks of Christ with all his perfection here. And the second from the end is the sin offering, even of a priest, because of the in, innate sin that belongs to every one of us, whoever we may be. And then in the middle, in the middle is the peace offering, right in the middle where it should be. When all the claims of God are met in Christ, both the positive and the negative, then the peace offering is there and that's the one offering in which God himself, the offerer and the priest all share. Now that would take us away too much this morning to go back to those passages. I commend them to your private study. But you see, peace is not simply quietness. It's something deeper. When Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, he spoke about the bond of peace. 
And the epistle to the Colossians was written to the same class of people, the same church, the same dispensation, but there he says, the bond of perfectness. Now to us, the bond of peace seems to be one thing, and the bond of perfectness seems to be quite different. But you see, the Apostle Paul was a Hebrew. And we know that he spoke Hebrew because it's mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. And he surprised the soldier when he said, Canst thou speak Greek? He got them both. And the Apostle Paul knew that the word peace in the Old Testament language didn't mean quietness. It meant absolute, complete settlement. Every claim perfectly settled. Always deeper, friends. So I want us to make that our own before we go very much further. Will you look at the passage which is referred to on the little card, Exodus 21. Now we are reading the English Bible, and so I must assure you that we are looking at the word shalom, which has various ways in which it is made into verbs and nouns and whatnot, but the basis of this, the word we're looking at in Exodus 21 is the word that gives us the word peace. Now verses 34-36. It says in verse 33, If a man shall open a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit and not cover it, and an ox or an ass fall therein, the owner of the pit shall make it good. Now, on the surface, you would not think that that was the word that gives us the word peace. Shalom. And give money unto the owner of them. And the dead beast shall be his. 36. Or if it be known that the ox hath used to push in time past, and his owner hath not kept him in, he shall surely pay ox for ox. He shall surely pay. That's the word peace. Don't you see it's deeper than merely quietness? This is a settlement. This man has lost an ox. The other man was irresponsible. And until it was settled, there'd be no peace between those two men. But if he paid ox for ox, then the whole thing is settled. Now, you see, we can never pay ox for ox. We can never go into the presence of God and put down the amount. It's beyond us. But blessed be God, Christ is our peace. And it cost him according to the epistle of the Colossians, is life's blood. Don't you see, friends, the more we emphasise the difficulty of attaining peace, the more we emphasise the fact that it depends upon the perfect sacrifice of Christ, the more solid that peace becomes when once we enter into it. We can't make it. We can't spoil it. It's ours. Just the salvation is a free gift. So now we've got the thought that the word shalom, shalem, and all the variants of it which give us the word peace is the thing which means to settle, to pay, to restore. Look at chapter 22 while you have Exodus open. Verses 1 to 3. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore. That's the same word. Same word that gives us the word peace. 
he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Or again, if a thief be found breaking up and be smitten, that he die, there should no blood be shed for him. If the man be risen upon him, there should be blood shed for him. For he should make full restitution. Full restitution. That's the basis of peace. So what I'm trying to, I'm labouring it perhaps is, that we cannot make our peace with God. You know the old story, we've had it before. The city missionary going into the home, and a man very, 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 very sick and ill, and being a missionary, he had the spiritual welfare of the man at heart, and he said to him, he said, my friend, have you made your peace with God? And the old man stretched himself up a little bit, and he says, no, no, it's been made for me. Of course, the missionary was right in what he meant, but the old man was right too. He never made his peace with God. His peace had been made for him by God through Christ. So we are labouring this point because it is so basic. Um, we'll turn now, shall we, to Romans, the fifth chapter, which we had read as a part of our lesson this morning. Now, Romans, particularly, is the epistle of justification by faith. The great key word is righteousness. And one of the disabilities of our language is this, that it is so wonderfully fluid that we can speak with words that come from the Latin and speak with words that come from the Anglo-Saxon, and we know neither the Latin nor the Anglo-Saxon. We never bother. But you see, if we were a bit more primitive for the moment, we would not say we are justified. We would say we are righteousified. But you say, well, that's silly. Oh, well, it sounds now that we say glory and glorified. We say sanctity and sanctified. But we say righteous and justified. So keep in mind with you, whenever you read the word just and justified, it's the same as the word righteous. There is one little way in which it was demonstrated to children, and it read like this. Justified means God treats me just as if I'd never done it. Why? Because he laid the burden on his beloved son, who bore our sins, died the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So we have this great emphasis on the fact that the fruit, the, the work of righteousness, shall be peace. And unless Christ is your saviour, the peace is a false one. Or there may be many a person going past this chapel who has got not the troubles that you have. But friend, you thank God you're troubled. For that man going past the chapel this morning as free as the air and no thought in his mind. Perhaps he's going to hear a word of condemnation at the finish. But you are troubled because your eyes have been opened to see the nature of sin and your eyes have been opened to see the utter inability of any man to do anything to justify himself. The whole gospel of the Apostle Paul committed to him by God 
is that we can do nothing. But Christ has done all. And we accept it by the hand of faith. And it's from there we begin to talk about what we can do by the grace of God. So it says in Romans 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access. So you see, peace gives access. But before we leave Romans 5, there is another way in which this has been rendered. If you go solidly through Romans 1, 2, 3 and 4, you can't miss the fact that you're justified by faith. Well now it's possible that the Apostle said this, Therefore, being justified, never mind how you're justified, you know that. Therefore, being justified by faith, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a suggestion. That because you're justified, peace comes as a necessary consequence. Peace will never be yours if you haven't got a righteous standing before God. But if you have a righteous standing before God, all the enmity, all the things that separated are gone and removed. And you have peace with God. Isn't that a blessed teaching? Isn't it worth coming out of a Sunday morning perhaps to have rehearsed in your ears what you know already so that you may say to yourself, Oh, what a saviour that he died for me. He is our peace who hath made the both one. Now there's another feature. When the Apostle Paul said he has made he, he is our peace who hath made the both one, we realise that is one of the phases of peace. But perhaps the Apostle, if you could have spoken to him, he said, oh, but do you know the basic meaning of the word Irene, which is the word translated peace? You say, no, I thought it just meant peace. But you will notice that I've suggested here that there are some lexicographers, that's a long word, isn't it, who say that it comes from a root word that means to connect together, to join up something that was separated. That's what peace does. If two people are at enmity and somebody can come and settle the matter between them, the whole thing is finished and they put their hand in the other one's hand and say, now, now make it up, that's the end of it. That's peace. That's Irene. That's the wonderful word that the Apostle uses here. So we have these two wonderful words, Shalom, the deep-sounding Hebrew word, peace. Irene, the lighter word, but nevertheless, a very wonderful word, peace. And this Irene peace is connected with access and being made one. Will you just look at the passage you know so well and rejoice in just to get it again? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Because wherever you've got peace, there must be in the background, either stated or implied, some form of enmity. Verse 11, <coughs> Ephesians 2. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Well, a person who is thus described cannot know the peace of God. Now, but now, all would have changed, but now, 
in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Don't you see? You can't be made nigh unless peace has been made. You can't have peace and stand afar off. Or you say, everybody knows that. Oh, friends, I know, but isn't it good to say it sometimes? So here it is. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made thee both, there's an article there, one. That is to say, the difference between the Gentile and the Jew, which is stressed in verse 11, is gone. And instead of some boasting that they were Israelites, and some bemoaning that they were Gentiles, he says, no. He is our peace, who has made the both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And that referred to the prohibition that all could read when the temple was standing in Jerusalem, that anyone being a foreigner who passed that barrier into the temple did so under the penalty of death which would immediately follow. And all that's gone through. All that diffidence, all that difference, all that distinction between one and another. And so it says he hath made both one. And the man who wrote that knew the basis of the word Irene. For that's what Irene does. It makes them one. It takes away that which divides. And this by nothing less than the blood of Christ. And again, you see, in verse 15 we've got peace. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Well, if you abolish the enmity, then you expect the peace as a consequence. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of the twain one new man. So, making peace. And then in case you weren't quite sure of it, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. He preached to them both, for they both needed it. And then it says, for through him, we, the both, have access by one spirit unto the Father. That's peace, isn't it? Access, enmity gone. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens belonging to the saints or the holy places and of the household of God, and so on. So here we have this wonderful emphasis upon peace. Well now, let's turn from that to another aspect which I think needs just a word or two. We have peace with God, but there's also the peace of God. Will you turn to Philippians? Now, Philippians doesn't cover the same ground as Ephesians and Colossians. It takes another point of view. It's the working out of that which God has already done. So we have a prize in Philippians, but there's no prize to run for in Ephesians. So we have here in Philippians um, chapter 3, um, just for a moment, Oh, chapter 4, I'm sorry. He says, verse, uh, verse 6, Be careful or anxious for nothing. It doesn't mean to say we've got to be slipshod, but not over-anxious. But in everything, 
So there's nothing on one side and there's everything on the other. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And God will give you everything you ask for. Is that what it says? Well, he doesn't, friends. At least he hasn't done that to me. And as I look back over my past, how thankful I am he didn't. But there's one thing he always does. Let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God. Not merely peace with God. This is the peace of God now. You are already made one with him through Christ. Now you'll be made one with him in experience. And that grows day by day. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Does anyone say, I don't understand this peace of God. Good, you're scriptural. You never will understand it in this life. It's deeper than the deepest depth and higher than the highest height. But don't refuse it because it's so vast. Here it is, for you, for me, for the lowliest of us. And the peace of God, which passes all possible expression of thought, there's all manner of ways of trying to translate this, shall keep your heart. So this is the, as they say today, the operative word, the word keep. Now you can find that there's quite a number of words translated keep, but this is a peculiar one. And it is used by the apostle in his own experience. For he had the experience of being lowered in a basket over a wall and making his escape from Damascus because the king kept that city with a garrison. Now to keep with a garrison is the very word here. You are kept with a garrison of soldiers. They're invisible to your eye or to one another. But that's what you are. God has given you peace. And he's going to protect it. He's going to surround you with the peace of God. So that peace with God can never be molested. So here it is. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall be like a garrison of soldiers to your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Then comes, and only then comes, your reaction. What you're going to do about it. Put that in the last place, not the first. Finally, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Let these things be uppermost in your mind. And then your relationship to others. The word think means to impute. And it may mean, don't look for the moat in your brother's eye too much. If, and put a strong emphasis on the if, if there be any virtue, reckon it. You see, we can always find the, the weak spots in one another, can't we? They stand out like a mile, don't they? And the good qualities which are slowly growing under the grace of God are poor little tiny plants, aren't they, at the best? Well, friends, if you're going to be in harmony with the peace of God, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, don't hold it back, friends. Just say it to the somebody. 
you might be a little ray of sunshine without knowing it. If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, reckon these things. And what's going to happen? Well, he said, I do that. I can call attention to my own manner of life. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard in and seen in me do. Well, that's a standard that I haven't reached and you haven't reached possibly. To be able to say to another seeking believer, what you've learned, received and heard and seen in me do, and here's the consequence. Not the peace of God or the peace with God, but the God of peace shall be with you. The God of peace shall be with you. So here we have then peace with God based upon the sacrifice of Christ that settles, completely pays for all the outstanding debts. He shall pay ox for ox. Then we have the peace of God. The garrisons is like a garrison of soldiers. And we have finally, as a result of both of those, the God of peace. And strangely enough, perhaps at first, the epistle to the Romans says, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now you are, you are to think about the God of peace in connection with war, do you? But when you put on the whole armour of God, your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and you're given a sword. So peace is not a manly parry thing. It's a wonderful thing. And the God of purpose, the God of the purpose of the ages, is the God of peace. And that's what he's aiming at. And to get it, he spared not his son and gave him up for us all. Oh, what a day is coming when peace in its real meaning, not a patched up thing, shall be the atmosphere in which we live and move and have our being. And all our present Christian experience can be in some measure just a poor little anticipation of what it will be one day. And then the last word I want to say, and I leave it with you, is we can all wish one another this wonderful blessing, can't we? But we can't give it to one another. So the words I finish with is taken from the Gospel according to John. Our Saviour suddenly appeared in the midst of his disciples, and he said, Peace be unto you. Well, I could say those words to you, couldn't I? But I couldn't do what he did. He said, peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side. So we have peace through the blood of his cross. May he give us grace to stand solidly on that rock beneath our feet and then to change the figure then to begin to think about growing in grace and adorning the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things.